City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar, producing Welcome to the American Theatre Wing Seminars on Working in the Theatre. These are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, which is located on 42nd Street. What a wonderful place for a campus. It's brilliant with theatre that goes on all over this area, from Broadway, Off-Broadway, and Off-Off-Broadway. They all come to share the magic of live professional theatre. And wherever you go, one hears of New York, Broadway, and the theater. It's a marvelous place to be. And the American Theater Wing is very proud to be able to present these seminars to you. This is just one more service of our year-round programs. Perhaps we are known very well and very justly so for the Tony Award. And they were created in honor of a woman named Antoinette Perry, who believed very strongly that one should be prepared for the theater in every part of the theater, every component. And so these seminars try to achieve just that. We do one of the performance, we do one in the play script and director, we do one on the complete company of a production, and we do one in the resident theater. We also work year-round to say theater to the community. And to the community, we bring through the theater wonderful performances to those that can't come to it in our hospitals and nursing homes and aid center programs. We bring live professional theater. We also have a program called Introduction to Broadway, and that's exactly what it is. Students from the five boroughs of New York City's high schools come to Broadway to see their first show. And this is done in cooperation with the, with the Board of Education of the City of New York, and with the generosity of the Broadway producers. It's a splendid program. It enlarges the thinking and, and the magic of, of students to be able to see what it is or what, how it is to go to the theater as well. And then we have another program, which is an extension of that, and that's theater in schools. And we take and people from every part of the whole of theater, from the director to the playwright to the performer and to the costume designer to talk about theater to these young students. It not only gives them an opportunity to meet with people in the theater, but also to be able to say, well, at some point maybe I too can be in the theater. I needn't be an actress. I could be a costume designer. It's the role model for them. And these seminars is really an outgrowth of the Wings School, where returning veterans came to retool and to learn again what it was to work in the theater. And we try to bring you every aspect of it, and we hope that we do. 
Uh, I'm Isabel Stevenson. I'm president of the American Theatre Wing, and I'm going to turn this program over to Brendan Gill, who is a member of the Board of Directors of the American Theatre Wing, an author and a critic, and George White, who is president of the Eugene O'Neill Theatre Center, who is a teacher and a director. And they, in turn, will elicit from this wonderful panel of directors and playwrights how they managed to get the magic out to the audience. Thank you all for coming here. On my far right is Greg Mosher. We spend a lot of uh, time on this program uh, observing one another's shoes. Uh, Greg looks as if he'd just walked down from the Adirondacks to be on our program. He was for several years the uh, director of Lincoln Center Theater and is currently bringing us David Mamet's play, Cryptogram. Uh, next to Greg is Tom Dulac, a playwright whose works include Breaking Legs and whose play on that bizarre figure, Ezra Pound, uh, was warmly welcomed here and we hope he's going to be back in, in, in the fall. Immediately next to Tom is Scott Ellis, director of the recent Broadway production of She Loves Me and current director of the play, The Great Tregain of Play, A Month in the Country. And next to me is Keith Glover. We, always, we had a Glover yesterday, we have a Glover today, whose work, Dancing on Moonlight, is currently playing at the Public Theater, and whose shoes look as if they are fresh from Le Cirque or 21. Good for <laughs> you. George. Thank you, Brendan. Um, on my, uh, or downstage uh, left, is uh, Jack Tantliff, who is president of Tantliff Office, of the Tantliff Office, a talent agency representing um, a, a group of, I almost said uh, electric, but you can, but eclectic group of actors, uh, writers, directors, and choreographers. On his immediate right is Lisa Peterson, director uh, whose recent credits include Scarlet Letter and uh, the, classic stage the classic stage company and Tony Kushner's Slavs. Um, and next to her is uh, Dan Butler, who is a playwright and a performer um, in the only thing, um, the only thing more you could have uh, worse. Sorry, it's my I didn't wear my glasses. I don't have my glasses. The only thing worse you could have told me. Thank you. And um, we wouldn't. We have a, a Glover every every day. Now we also have a Sean. And next to me is Sean Mathias, who is uh, currently the director of Broadway's Indiscretions. That's a play, not a. Uh, not, a watch. not an indiscretion. <laughs> not an indiscretion. Uh, so, um, not a condition. Did you want to ask the first question? Well, yeah, I uh, I would like to start because uh, you know uh, Greg has had such an interesting um, career recently in changing from coming from the Goodman, and I, I wanted to say, how did you get started? You might tell us that, and then just track what's going on with you recently, because it's a very exciting, I think it's a very exciting history. Thanks. Uh, I, I got started because of writers. I, I was never interested in working with uh, movie stars or any of that aspect. I got into the theater because of Tom Stoppard and Harold Pinter and, and Samuel Beckett and people who changed my life. Um, and just by reading their works, it didn't occur to me you could actually meet these people or work with them. They were just people in books. Um, and then when I was 25, I ran into David Mamet, and that changed my life because it gave me a colleague and a best friend, but uh, also a person who was relentless in, in insisting uh, that the theater begins with work on the page. So that's And you really began together in Chicago. We began together in Chicago, and my, at both at the Goodman and at Lincoln Center, they were really playwrights' theaters, and um, the motto was, the playwright pays your rent. 
And because uh, a playwright does pay your rent, everybody's rent. And uh, I think the whole theater must always be in the service of the playwright's intentions. Uh, what, what, uh, in your own training, how did you train? Did you train at the Goodman and then grow out of it? No, I went to, uh, I went to Juilliard, I guess, where I didn't learn very much, I must say. <laughs> <clears throat> but it still wasn't the teacher's fault. I just wasn't ready to learn much. I really didn't learn much until I got out. Mostly I've learned just from reading plays and from making endless mistakes, as I suppose all of us on this panel have. I look back now, I'm just embarrassed by the things I've said to actors and writers over the years. <laughs> but, uh... And how did you get out to, did you, then, how did you get to Chicago? If you were trained at Juilliard, how did you... Uh, a to Juilliard professor of mine went to Chicago and I went out to do everything. I was the casting director and the literary manager and the assistant to everybody, and I worked 150 hours a week and was happy every single second. So you were an Easterner going west? Yes, I've always been. And I, when I came back in 85, it was coming home. For mm -hmm. And what about David Mamet? Does he feel still more western than eastern? Well, I think his sensibility is such a Chicago sensibility, but he's lived in the east for and 20 like years now. And he's like you with your shoes. He's in New England in the woods. Exactly, kind of exactly. Tom, what about you in terms of uh, where you began? Well, I grew up in Chicago, just outside of Chicago. I went to school uh, in the Midwest, Indiana University. <laughs> and I always wanted to uh, come east. And uh, I started out wanting to be, uh, and in fact, I had an incarnation as a novelist of sorts. I published four books in the, in the 70s. I came out here and was teaching at the University of Connecticut. And uh, I was always writing plays um, without the first contact with theater. I mean, I was writing plays in my library and from reading plays. And... Uh, wasn't until I began to, by accident, do some directing at the University of Connecticut uh, that I began to get some practical theater experience that then began to make my plays more um, viable. And then John Tillinger uh, picked up a play of mine in the mid-70s for a reading of The Long Wharf, and uh, that began a 20-year association. And just about the time when my... Um, novels were becoming unpublishable. Uh, they were getting longer and more obtuse and more uh, uh, difficult in every way. Um, suddenly and miraculously, um, Tillinger and Arvin Brown produced uh, a play of mine called um, Solomon's Child, which the late Frank Rich loved. Um, and uh, and that started that started my career in professional theater. This was in 78, 79. Long um, Wharf has been so critical. Hmm? That, the, the Long Wharf Theater has been so critical in that respect. Very a important. Lot of people. Yeah. yeah, really a wonderful it's kind of nursery. It's in the right place. Nursery. It makes yeah. things possible yeah. in a way. Very hospitable. Yeah, yeah, they were certainly to me. How did yeah. you get your play to Long Wharf? How did, I mean... By the most extraordinary accident. Uh, Tillinger and Arvind both told me this story. Uh, we did a reading in 74 of a play that never got produced. Um, and in 78 or so, Joey said that uh, he went over to Arvin's house one night, and Arvin said, for God's sake, do something with that pile of plays, uh, which numbered about 300 at that point. <laughs> do something, get rid of them. And uh, Tillinger began leafing through, and he said, here's a play by Tom Dulac in this heap. Uh, and Arvin said, who's Tom Dulac? And he said, we did a reading by this guy a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And so he took the play home and read it, and by that accident, uh, you know, if Arvin hadn't been house cleaning that particular night, 
I probably wouldn't be here today. It's odd to me to hear you say that the novels were, in effect, get, getting away from you. They were getting more and more, as you, you were in the helpless presence of something <laughs> that you couldn't manage. But a play, it seems to me, is infinitely more difficult to write than a novel. It is more difficult. It a is novel is self-indulgent, really. Very self-indulgent. keep on going and going. Yeah. yeah, which is why I couldn't get them published anymore, I think. Mm -hmm. I was being so self-indulgent. But now, do you, do you go, have you done your novels over into plays ever? Actually, Incommunicado, which is the play about Ezra Pound that made a brief appearance here uh, last month, um, started as a novel. That was my last, that was the one that got me into the theater because it was about 1,200 pages when I stopped. Um, and it was a fictionalized account of Pound's life. Mm -hmm. uh, and then somewhere in the mid-80s, um, I decided to cull what I could out of all that massive research and make this tiny little play of three, mm -hmm. four characters, uh, which I did. Uh, one thing I think is important to mention now, because it was being mentioned yesterday by some of the, by, by some of the actors, about how much material there is, how much theater there is in New York now, and there's a shortage of the right theaters for, the, for, for mm -hmm. the material we have. So Tom Dulac's play, which received rave reviews, the Cesar Pound play in Communicado, and, and could only stay for a short while in a theater, and, and the hope is now that it can be brought back in the fall when, the, when a theater becomes available. But what an extraordinary situation that our richness of opportunity in New York in terms of playwrights and actors and the stage designers and everything is now at the mercy of, the, of, of, the, of, of one thing that we never thought we were going to have to worry about, really? was finding the, the theater for it. was going the other direction. Yeah. It's it's terrifying. We were begging. I mean, we were willing to buy out other plays, other productions, you know, anything to get the play. Mm -hmm. But it will space. come back in the fall. I'm sure it will come back in the fall. I have yeah. my fingers crossed. Yeah. I wanted to pick up um, with the playwright. Uh, Dan, uh, you are also a performer, um, uh, which uh, you, sometimes we have playwrights, um, you know, directing their work and all. But uh, tell us a little bit about how you started and how you ended up where you are as a performer. Did, you know, and <coughs> we talked about Begdosian is one of the the few people that, you know, is directing and, I mean, directing, acting and doing his own work. Well, I think there are a lot of them, at least out in Los Angeles right now. It's, uh -huh. it's so, you know, when Greg was talking uh, I, about background, I think from my own experience and from others, I would think anything to get limits away. And I think the way I work uh, is as a pack rat, whatever works for you. Uh, I think sometimes you find, at least, I hated class, too, and I was rotten at it. I'm glad I went through it, but for me, it was setting limits on myself instead of opening up possibilities. Um, but that was a part of growing up. I uh, have been an actor since I was seven. I was always led to it. I would get uh, cousins. What were you playing in seven, not Hamlet? Were you in L.A.? You Winthrop in uh, The uh, Music Man. Okay. Uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, and I been with theaters, uh, you know, I've gotten away from it, but it, that's always been my great love to come back to it. I lived in Manhattan for uh, about 10 years, did a lot of off-Broadway, uh, Broadway. Uh, I did a lot of regional theater. I got my training at American Conservatory Theater, the conservatory in San Francisco, then trained with some people here. Um, and then I've been living in Los Angeles for about four years. Uh, uh, and there's been a lot of theater out there. I was associate artistic director of a theater company. Um, I had written the book and lyrics to a musical that was produced twice in England. Um, and this, right now, uh, the only thing worse you could have told me, came out of 
Oh, a desire to stay within the theater, but to talk about a subject that means a lot to me that I'm processing right now about being gay, and uh, and to write some great parts for myself. <laughs> and uh, so it all came together, and it's I think it's ironic that it came out of Los Angeles, which. When I first moved to Los Angeles, I think living in New York City, you take a great uh, uh, scorn the way you look at Los Angeles, uh, at least in a um, theater-wise. Uh, there's been there've been some great there's been great theater out there. You have to search for it uh, more, so it's not all on an island. Uh, but uh, it's funny that it started as a six-week run and it it stretched to seven months. And um, that we came here, we ran into the same problem with there were no theaters. We had to take over the lease, a temporary lease of the Actors Playhouse to be allowed to, uh, to do it because uh, I only had a, a small window of opportunity to do it. Um, so I just feel very grateful to be here. It sounds like you also in the, uh, got involved with producing yourself as well. Uh, or, or did you find somebody to produce with um, you? Or how did, that's a whole yeah, number Scott, you're doing. Um, Scott Allen is my producer and a friend. And, you know, when I, when I set out to do this, I really wanted it to be successful on many different levels for everyone involved. And so I'm very excited that this is Scott's first big venture as a producer. Uh, my director, Randy Brenner, it's his... New York debut as a director, so that's very exciting. Um, my stage manager is someone I, we did theater together in Indiana when I was uh, growing up, so it's nice to have a support group and family, uh, and that just keeps you grounded in the theater and what you love to do. So you were born in Indiana, yes, as, I was. as Tom was. How many more Indianians? It's very impressive. The, the heartland, yes. And what shoes do who shoes with? James Quitcomb, right? Say that three times. <laughs> <laughs> Lisa, oh, I was going to say, well, did, how did you find the public theater? We're talking about shortage of theaters. How did I find it? Well, how did they find you? <laughs> they, they, they found me. I mean, it's, it's funny because I have like, I think I've always had a certain karma with the public theater. I'm from Bessemer, Alabama, and the first play I ever saw was at the public theater was Color Girls, and so the first job I ever had, because I'm primarily an actor, was at the public theater. Mm -hmm. So it was like, you know. This is where I, I, in a sense, I should be at. And um, being there, it was like, uh, I always would like the shows that they, that they did. And when I finished the first draft of, of Dancing on Moonlight, I immediately, you know, in my ignorance, thought you can just send the play. They go, oh, this is great. You know, let's do it or not do it or whatever. And uh, I sent it in, and they sent me a letter back. We are not interested in doing this play, <laughs> you know. And then, um, you know, I went, oh, okay, you know, this is a challenge. And I went back into, into writing it. And I had it no... Was your first play? It was my first play. Yeah. Yeah, it was my first play. And Keith was saying before, when we came on, that uh, he, his title is the most important thing. He yeah. has a wonderful title for his play, Dancing in Moonlight. Uh, but it was the beginning of your thought, and after mm -hmm. that all thought, I think most other people just fret about titles forever, but, but well, uh, not you. No, I usually, I usually, I get the title first, and I usually run it past my wife, and I go, what do you think about this? And she goes, okay. <laughs> you know, or she goes, you can do a little bit better, or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then I usually, you know, I try to live up to the title. Yeah. Well, now, you came out of, uh, uh, you said you came from Alabama, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, where we, what, you know, in, in, intrigued you about writing 
plays. Uh, well, I, how I, did that come? Were you a child of the theater, or is there, in no. the sense, or did you see a lot? Or <laughs> well, I think I'm, I think I'm basically a a, a a child of of programs that went into the inner city to bring uh -huh. theater mm -hmm. to people who basically had not seen it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember when I saw the first play I ever saw was Colored Girls, and how I went was. In a sense, there was a program where we could go for five dollars, and my mother, you know, took me to see it. You know, and I'm like, wow. You know, I wanted to put on, you know, be those women and go do these great roles and stuff. I'm like, hey, is that a role for me? I can be one of those trifling guys. <laughs> you know, but um, as an actor, and I, you know, then I went and tried to go around the city doing, you know, trying to be an actor, and that was great. But then I remember the uh, the late Gerald Chapman came to my high school. I went to Murray Bertram and came in and gave a seminar, and uh, he brought uh, Herb Gardner and um, you know Eve Miriam and uh, Ruth Getz, and they all came and sat down with us. And it was it was strange because at that time um, I would always go to the library because there was a cute girl in the library, and I would like sit down <laughs> and I would pick up a play and you know sit next to her trying to get the the nerve to talk to her and stuff. But then you know I found out she didn't like me, but I kept writing reading the plays anyway. <laughs> But uh, one thing about it was Herb Gardner was there, and I knew who he was, you know, which kind of, you know, blew his mind. Said, you wrote a thousand clowns, right? Yeah. You know, he was like, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> you know. But then they said, like, you know, had us write scenes, and you know, we were playing around with scenes, and I didn't know anything, you know, what you couldn't have, you know. I mean, my first, I think my first scene had like 14 people, you know, in the scene and stuff. And uh, Gerald said, this is really, you know, you, I think you have some talent with that. And there was a number of students that he also said, you have some talent for this. And um, he um, asked me, you know, if we could write anything, either a one-act or full-length play, and send it in for, this was like the first Young Playwrights Festival. And um, I sent a play in there, which was like 20 characters, you know. It was like not understanding economics or anything like that. And um, he allowed uh, myself and a number of, of, of innocent uh, kids from um, the New York City high schools to see theater. I mean, we went to see a Fifth of July. Um, we were able to go backstage and like meet Mitchell Thomas and stuff, and to see that it was real, that it was real people and how it worked. I remember we went down and saw um, uh, Circle uh, Rep was having the plays in progress kind of thing. And you know we had a chance to see like a workshop of a play, mm -hmm. you know, and and again a chance to really see a world that we basically hadn't saw, you know. And after that, I was basically you know hooked, you mm -hmm. know. I was starting to you know cut school and go see theater, mm -hmm. see a lot of theater, you know. Uh, you know, my mother said, "Hey, I got this absent seat thing, you know. Where did this come from?" <laughs> you know, I I'm you know I'm I'm inspired, mom. You know, I have to see theater. Yeah, you're real education. And you yeah. you right. <laughs> So you began as an actor, as Shakespeare did, and then began writing plays. And then, but what about you in terms of directing? Were you an actor before you were a director? Yeah. yeah. So How could you do it otherwise? I would think you'd be bound to start having to know about moving around on the stage before, as a director, you could tell people anything. Well, about I, I imagine directors, you know, come different come from different places all the time. I, I actually went to the Goodman School of Drama. In fact, <laughs> Mr. Mosher was a teacher of mine for a little bit and uh, from Chicago and started as an actor, um, came to New York, worked for quite a while, and then I was in a show called The Rink with Candor and Ebb. And I just one day decided I think I'd like to direct, so I asked them if I could have the rights to Flora the Red Menace, which is a show they wrote years ago. So they gave me their lawyer's number. I called up. I got the rights. And we took three years to rewrite it and redo it. 
and we performed at the Vineyard Theater, and it was a success. And I thought, well, maybe I'll keep trying. <laughs> to didn't this. you also, uh, Scott? Um, how did you you hook up with uh, Roundabout? Didn't you? I mean, that was that's been a great thing for both sides here. I mean, both yeah, both Roundabout, you has, and roundabout. <clears throat> has been terrific. But I'll tell you that it, I I met Roundabout when I uh, did another show called The World Goes Round, which uh, was playing off Broadway and. My agent got me in to meet Todd, and we had a nice talk. And then about a year later, I went back to Todd, and I said, I just knocked on the door, and I said, I have an idea that I think you, the theater would be terrific doing She Loves Me, which I had called the authors and said, could I shop this piece around? And they said, yes. Yeah. So I went, and Todd didn't know She Loves Me, but I kept calling him saying, please listen to this, please listen to it. He did. He liked it and agreed to do it. So that's sort of how that relationship started, which was, uh, which has been a very important one yeah. for me. Can very important. To, to gain it. To, to, to gain you. <laughs> well, I see a real, you know, <laughs> real connection there. You know. But now, how did you come to the to gain well, actually, uh, I was in London doing She Loves Me, and I had never seen A Month in the Country. I'm embarrassed to say I had never read it. I'd read, read some of the other Tegania stories, but I'd never read, read the play. And I just went on a fluke to see it. And I remember watching it, and I swear, at the end of the, the play, I got up and I thought, God, I would love a shot at this play. It just, mm -hmm. for some reason, connected. So I came back, I picked it up, I read it again, not knowing at all that I would ever do it. And then... You know, things sometimes things work out, and the roundabout called, and I was supposed to do another play for them, which was falling through because of some casting problems. And they said Helen was available, and I said I love the play. I said I'm sure Helen will not agree to let a director that she doesn't know who the hell he is to direct this, and she was gracious enough to to say yes. So now, you had to cut because it is such yes. a very long play. Yes. Now, was that part of your yes. duty? Whom did you share that? Obligation with Helen. <laughs> I flew out to L.A. and we both agreed that it needed to be cut, even from the London version. And the London was, version was, was very English, so I, I took out all the English references mm -hmm. in London and then we continued cutting from there. I had my ideas of how I felt it could be cut more. Helen was very helpful, specifically with her own role, saying, mm -hmm. I didn't need this, I don't need that. Mm -hmm. So we got it to a what I'm very proud of, a pretty good good running time for a very long play, mm -hmm. and uh, it, it feels pretty good. Uh, historically, one always hears about the conflicts between directors and, and authors and all that, or uh, that the director has helped the author to make a, the Kazan, Tennessee Williams business, uh, the play's workable. Tom, do you, uh, what has been your relationship between you as an author and, and the director's uh, this is, again, very different from writing a novel where you're in charge all together. Well, I just directed a production of Breaking Legs in Pasadena, and the director-author relationship was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Funny how that works. <laughs> um, I, 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 I was on this panel, I think, in 1991. I think at that point I said that I found basically directors a necessary evil. <clears throat> As I get older, I find them an unnecessary evil. Uh, more and more. I, I like to direct my own work. <clears throat> and um, flying in the face of all conventional wisdom uh, on this matter. I think more and more playwrights are directing their work now. now and historically, in the recent past, Beckett often uh, got involved with the direction of his own work. Does, uh, does Pinter now direct his own work? Now, give us some other examples. I wouldn't have wanted Tennessee Williams to direct his own work. No, we would not have wanted <laughs> no. to see it. Uh, well, but, David has just directed Cryptogram. I did the London yeah. premiere, but he's done it here in America. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. Albie directs his own work. Mm -hmm. I think uh, that, yeah, and, and many of them feel 
uh, strangely that it's in self-defense, which is kind of scary. But uh, Lisa, by the way, you, you, you are a director in the middle of, uh, you know, an ongoing uh, association with Slavs. Uh, tell me about your background, and you really have, uh, in a sense, like Scott, uh, been very key to certain theaters that have done the work and, and tie. Is that, uh, was that your way into the profession, was getting associated that way? I guess so. Oh, I didn't oh. know it as I began, but for me, it's been a series of associations with theaters that I've been able to call home, although none of them full-time, but um, I kind of landed at... I landed in the new play world right out of college. Uh, that was uh, Ensemble Studio Theater, which is just this, you know, tiny little hole in the wall, but very, very uh, fertile land of playwrights. And that was the first home that I landed in. And at each of those homes, you sort of spend your time getting to the point where someone will let you direct a play, and it goes well, and you do it again. And so EST was the first place, and that's where I learned about working on a new play and what dramaturgy might be and how directors can can help in the in the shaping of a new play so that was exciting and at the same time I also was uh, becoming involved in the world of casting which was something that I did for about five years at the beginning of my career as a way to make a living and uh, it also turned out to be an extraordinary way to get to know a lot of actors and directors and watch a lot of wonderful directors working and to meet writers but at the same time I was always moonlighting as a director in my spare time and so Ensemble Studio Theatre was the first place that worked that way for me and the other major um, place in New York has been New York Theatre Workshop where I've this I think is was just my, was my fourth play at that theatre um, so and then various places outside of New York as well um, there's a theater in Ithaca, New York, called the Hangar Theater. Good, sure. Yeah, with Robert Moss runs it, and that was really important for me early on. I used to go up there in the summer, and he would let me do Moliere and Shaw and uh, plays that I that I wouldn't be able to do anywhere else except there. And so I didn't go to grad school, but that was that combined with the practical, hands-on experience of New York was my kind of graduate school learning as I went. You know, making mistakes all the time, and. Uh, and then more, more recently, La Jolla Playhouse out in California. Uh, for the last three years, I've been associate director there. And like The Hangar, I've been able to do classics there while I... Because for me, primarily, it, it, was, it was the writer that was paying my rent. I mean, in the last five years, making a living as a director, it, it's, it's about uh, forming relationships with writers that can be ongoing and uh, working in, in the world of play development. Now this is uh, something that is really perhaps not uh, organic to this particular panel, but uh, do you believe in casting directors? Do you do your own casting, having come out of that world? I believe in casting directors. Well, I was one, so I uh, know okay. how important right. they can be. That's an aside. But, <laughs> yeah. but speaking of how, how people get in the door, Jack, uh, uh, you're the person that opens doors, I assume, for people. Try. And uh, how do people get to you and... Uh, uh, or, you know, there's the old business about, we'll get into something and then I'll come and see you. Uh, well, how do you get into something if, if you don't have an agent all that time? You want to talk about what you look for and how people get your attention? Well, as far as writers go, um, we, all of us at the agency, spend a lot of time seeing plays, a lot of time reading plays. Um, it's very easy to get material because there are so many hundreds upon hundreds of people out there who are writing plays. All you have to do is raise your hand and say, 
I'm an agent. Send me material, and it will come to you in droves. Um, as far as getting material out there, once you are working with a writer, um, you know, most struggling writers uh, look at the world of theaters as, as being kind of a brick wall. You know, nobody wants to hear from them. And in point of fact, exactly the opposite is true. There is a, a, a huge hunger out there for new work, for new writers. So all I have to do is call Greg or Lisa or somebody on the phone and say, I'd like you to read this. It doesn't mean they'll do it, but as directors of new work, especially directors who are associated with theaters directly, they want to be aware of all of the writers out there. And then it, it depends a lot on luck, on accidents. Tom's story is, is wonderful, and um, I have a story just like that. I was uh, working out of my living room, representing uh, a small group of uh, young writers that no one had heard of. Um, and I had a play by a writer named Howard Quarter called Boy's Life that I loved. And we had sent this to just about every theater in the country. And everybody said, well, yeah, this is a really good play. We'd like to see his next one. Um, <laughs> and all during this process, there was a group of kids called the Atlantic Theater Company. And they were students of Greg's, and they were graduates of NYU. And they kept saying to Howard, we want to do your play. And for about three years, we kept saying no, because we didn't know them, and they seemed too young. Um, finally, they said, look, we can get this theater on 42nd Street, and, and we'll pay Howard $500. And Howard looked at me, and he said, look, nobody, nobody is doing this play. Why don't we just give it to them? Because we kind of liked them. And so we did. And they were in rehearsal to do the play on 42nd Street. Meantime, up at Lincoln Center, and this was, was this the first year? Second Your first year. or second year? Um, there was a project that was in some kind of big trouble up there. And uh, finally just fell through because of so-called creative differences. And Greg had this hole. And he knew, because of his association with the Atlantic Theater Company, that they were in rehearsal to do this play on 42nd Street. And uh, he called me up and he said, would you think of doing this play up here? You know, this play that I, I had liked a lot, but had passed on like everybody else. And, uh, you know, it was very exciting. And we kind of just did that. And suddenly, instead of being reviewed by Wilburn Hampton or someone like that, we were reviewed by Frank Rich. And not only reviewed, but we got a rave. And all of a sudden, everybody is descending, not only on Howard, but on me. Neither one of us had any stock at the time, and suddenly our stock was very high. And I was working out of uh, a fifth floor walk-up apartment, which is where I lived at the time. And 
even then, I, I, I found it very entertaining to, to uh, witness the kinds of people who were walking up those five flights <laughs> to meet me and to meet Howard. And they were all people who, you know, three weeks ago, probably couldn't have gotten on the phone. Um, so Howard was a great, great playwright. And Boy's Life was a great, great play. But beyond that, there were all of these sort of happy accidents that conspired to let it have its debut at the Mitzi Newhouse. And, and then, you know, the rest was history. Uh, one other quick thing. What was your background that, this, when did you first get these feelings about wanting to be an agent? Uh, <laughs> I never wanted to be an agent. It always seemed to me to be a despicable kind of career. Um, I actually came out of school and found jobs in management offices and worked as a company manager uh, off-Broadway for a few years. Um, I was managing a play called The Dining Room at the Astor Place Theater, which was about to close. And I saw... Uh, I, I started looking around for other work, other management jobs, but it was a, a very bleak time and it was getting to be summer and uh, there was just nothing around and a friend of mine called me up and said Clifford Stevens who uh, used to have a company called STE uh, needs an assistant and I thought well my father always said you know meet everybody <laughs> so now this is this this is going to sound really really stupid but it's true um, I was working at Playwrights Horizons because they produced the dining room, and, and this was before their big renovation. And uh, it was early July, and there was this horrible heat wave in New York, and it was like 105 degrees. And there was no air conditioning at Playwrights Horizons. And I walked into Clifford's office, and it was like a refrigerator. And at that moment, <laughs> I decided... <laughs> I decided... I will work here at least for the summer. And so I did, I did everything I could to get that job. And, and that is how I ended up in the agency world. More than anything else. I think everybody here and everybody everywhere, if, if they're honest, can look, a, look back and, and I always call Being them happy the right accidents. It's, it's sort of... Um, it's being able to sense an opportunity and then being able to act on it. And that's what I always try to do. I try to be on the lookout for, for my clients, too. You know, just what... If I'm lucky enough that an opportunity is going to come my way, I want to be smart enough to spot it. There you are. Good. And, and now this penthouse where you, you don't give the address of your penthouse, but anyway, that's all right. Don't <laughs> I've moved that. since then. Yeah. Now, Lisa began... I to, I'm sorry. Lise began in part her training through the directing of dead authors like Shaw and Moliere, and you were the director of a dead author. The, with indiscretions, uh, how unlike your production uh, is the uh, play uh, the, as it was when it initially was performed? Wow. And also, what's your route to Broadway, which was kind of interesting. Right. Well, I'm a little too young to answer the first question. I, <laughs> I only meant in, in, in historic perspective. I would think hugely. Um, I just uh, have also done Design for Living, another by Noah Coward, another dead author in London, um, which I sandwiched between my production of Les Parents Terribles, as it was originally called at the National Theatre, and Indiscretions here. Um, 
And I think for, for both productions, um, I was able to <coughs> bring a sensibility that would not have been allowed in the original uh, uh, time the plays were produced uh, because of uh, censors censorship, in, not only in the theatre, but within society. And I suppose that uh, my card, if you like, is that I have uh, developed the subtext of the plays, of both of the plays, rather more thoroughly than the text. And in that, there have been, there's been a certain amount of invention which the production has allowed and the performances have allowed, which wouldn't have been there before. The productions are more visceral and more sexual, I think, you, simply speaking. Mm -hmm. And that is partly a function of the times we live in, you think, well, along with your own sensibility. Well, it's, my, it's very much my private sensibility. Yeah. Right. I, I suppose it does reflect the times, otherwise the, the productions wouldn't be so popular, but um, it's very much my take on it. Mm -hmm. The indiscretions is the title... Uh, Part of the difficulty with the title uh, would have been, I suppose, people not understanding whether terrible really means terrible. Well, it doesn't quite mean terrible. It doesn't no, quite it's mean It's not that. a literal translation. Right. So, it, so, you, so it, it looks like the parent's terrible, but that's not a great translation. It's but almost awesome. Or it's, or it's, uh, yes, or terrifying. Or, yes, it, and it has an irony, um, which it, the, the word terrible doesn't have. But it's, it's, for, it's, it's more than that. When we did it in London at the National Theatre, the audience, um, some people thought the play was in French. Mm -hmm. And that's at the National Theatre of Great Britain where you get what we consider to be a high-ranking cultured audience. Uh, people who didn't think it was in French would be frightened to phone up the box office and say the title in French. Blaze um, mm -hmm. Parents Terribles. <laughs> <laughs> or they would call up and ask for the Cocteau. Or they would call up and ask for the new play in the Littleton Theatre, which is the theatre mm -hmm. was playing at. So there, there were a series of problems, and it was hard to market with the title. So right. when they, are, they said they wanted to change the title here, I was very disappointed, but I also could see the wisdom, the potential wisdom of it, having been through the, um, that route in London. Mm -hmm. um, I just uh, didn't feel that the title that we have really represents the play. <laughs> so now, It doesn't uh, really tell you anything much no. about the play at no. all, but, it's just, but it works as... A, as, a, as as better than having... Well, it sounds French. like a sort of movie title, and then no. the fact that Kathleen Turner is in it, it makes it sound like, uh, you know, some sort of movie she might be in. That, of course, is terribly misleading, because the kind of audience that might go to see Kathleen Turner in the movie Indiscretions aren't necessarily the audience for this play by Jean Cocteau. So... It's a it's thrilling opportunity for her. She's terrific oh, yeah. in it, and mm -hmm. it's wonderful, and, and everybody's so startled to see how wonderful she is in this kind of role. But, the, but your production is also extremely physical, I suppose a lot more physical in terms of uh, motion up and down in that tremendous right. uh, three-story high spiral staircase and all that as compared with whatever... Cocteau must have done in Paris, which was, what, 1938? Well, I saw the movie of the, of the original play, and, uh, which was extremely formal, where the people just stand around in a, in a drawing room situation, and they talk terribly fast, faster than we could ever talk, which is the most sort of uh, riveting thing about the piece of work, I think. That, that, that's the athleticism and the physicalization is in the way they speak the lines, mm -hmm. which was very thrilling. But apart from that, the motion of it was uh, terribly conventional. Mm -hmm. And you, you wouldn't know, for instance, that anybody was having any kind of sexual relationship within the hothouse. Whereas in my production... Oh, uh, yes, you might gather that. that. You might gather what, what, who, was what, there, who was in the original production? Any George, celebrated person? Yeah. We're talking with uh, directors who've been working with dead playwrights. And so I wanted to move on from them to Greg, who was working with a very live playwright. And I want to know how, how do you work with Mammoth, or how does Mammoth work with you? 
Well, I think sort of the same way you work with dead playwrights. I mean, no, but it's I, the, I, the dead I, playwright doesn't talk back, and you can make your cuts with the dead playwright. Also, without well, can I just finish on that? Because the, the, my playwright isn't entirely dead. It's in translation, in the sense of the cocktail, yes, of Jeremy. by right. Jeremy Sams, who very much talks back. With alarming speed. And I have to have a relationship with him very much the way I would have to have a relationship if Pinter had written a new play. Mm -hmm. there, there is very little difference in that. I mean, he didn't originate it, but he protects it fastidiously as if it were his child. So the, the, the relationship between director and author is, is very similar. So but it's not quite as simple as just a dead playwright. Yeah, I'm picking up on that, too. Um, the approach, uh, since many of us have worked with uh, new playwrights, what, let's, let's start with you, Greg, uh, to go a little further. How do you deal with them? Well, I know you and, and Mamet have had a long relationship, but other playwrights that are, that are, uh, are, are live, what is your diplomatic take on how do, how do you start? Let's say you have well, not I think the more respect you bring, whether it's Howard Corder or whether it's Tennessee Williams, whose last full-length play was done at the Goodman Theater, at a time when no one would do Tennessee's plays. Uh, I assure you, the Goodman Theater was not his first choice. Um, uh, but I, I try to treat them all and have everyone at the theater treat them all with the same respect. And I think that the more respect you bring, the more ability to speak in a straightforward way you can do it. If you're working behind their back, then that's no good, or sneaking changes in, or talking to the actors behind their back, or, or in any way speaking disrespectfully of them. But if you understand that we've all come together to do what he or she has created, then you can be very forthright, it seems to me, and just say, I'm sorry, I don't understand the point of the scene. I may misunderstand your play, but if I understand this play as a, the story of X, Y, and Z, why is this? I just don't understand why this is here. And most times they will say, they will either explain to you how you've misunderstood the play, or they will agree, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. I was going to ask you, was there a time, I completely agree with what you said. I mean, I hate the whole notion that in the theatre people talk to each other in corners. It seems mm -hmm. ludicrous, very old-fashioned. Uh, the producers more than once have asked me, do, do I want to take the actors aside and work with them privately? Well, absolutely not. I work very much from the group ethic. But I was going to ask you, is there a time when you ask the writer not to come to rehearsals? No, but that you've really hit on it because there are times I would give anything for them not to be there. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, just because sometimes I just, I don't work quite as freely as I would, I think, if they were off in the corner. And Dave sometimes uh, is, is there every day. He was there, I think, every single day for Glengarry Glen Ross. And that was for the second production because it had been done in London. And, um, but he never saw a single rehearsal of Cryptogram in London last year. Mm -hmm. So, but, that's trust, yeah, but yeah. I think it's their call, right. finally. And um, if they become boring or obtrusive, then you just have to say, I'm sorry, you're being boring. We can't get the work done because you have to listen more and talk less. Mm -hmm. But that's not necessarily easy to say to someone who's one of you. But well, anyway, the obvious thing is dead playwrights. We're, 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 I, yes, it's I, wrong. I They're really all live playwrights. Well, of course, really, is the whole point of it. Or you, well, you wouldn't be doing and it. And I thought you were all wincing when the word dead playwright came because yeah, there, yeah, no there is no such thing. There is no such thing. Whose call is it? How do you direct? Are you a strong director with your performance? You lock out everything and you don't. You do not move from that, or do you... No, I think it's always way. in... in, in you talked about the more confident, but now what I, about the performance? I think the more confident you get, the more willing you're let to 
to let everybody have space. Mm -hmm. Yes, wouldn't you all agree? Yeah. Scott, what do you, what's your take on no, that? No, I was just saying, I, I, I certainly uh, dealing with Turgenev, too, I think you do come with such a respect. I was also fortunate to, uh, to relook at Picnic a little bit and having gone down to Kansas City and looking at his original scripts and so forth. You come with such a respect that he is very much, these authors are very much alive. And I was fortunate enough with, the with Month in the Country to find a specialist on Turgenev who would sit with me day after day with the original, his original script in Russian. And I would constantly go and say, what is he saying right here? What, what did he say? You'd be shocked how different it is in the translations that people have taken throughout the year. And they're month in the country has you know eight of them that were on my desk but it was great to go back and hear the author speak and and really n focus in on what so i was constantly going back to the original uh author and so yes i did win i do wince because he he's very much alive and 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 Inge was very much alive when mm -hmm. i was working at i always felt that. it's the translations that age isn't that's right yeah. the original is always fresh sure. and you need yes. the translations yeah. Yeah. Uh, Keith, what is your, because you're, uh, you know, you're alive. You're alive. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what's your take on directors? From well, it's home? funny. The director that I have, Marion McClinton, we first met actor to director. Um, and we were working on a new play. And the playwright was really, really just wanted to strangle him. And I saw how Ma Marion basically handled him. And Marion also is a very exciting playwright in his own re regard. So we came from that perspective. Has also working with him as an actor, I found out how he worked with actors and there was a, a, a great amount of trust in there. And when we find out, uh, decided that we were going to work together at the public, I was working with him as an actor in two trains running uh, in Baltimore. And we were working, we said, hey, we're gonna do this project together. So in a sense, we were rehearsing Another play, August, you know, who has a great demands. August Wilson has great demands on the actor, and, and it's also in terms of text. And we were looking. He was saying, you know, there's parallels in terms of how dense August is, and also how dense we have some stuff in in in, in dancing. So we were talking, you know, in both regards. So when we at night after you know the show would be over, we would you know sit around, you know have a you know coca-cola and stuff and we would discuss and then he would like we be basically really started from the very beginning of where the play came from you know we were listening to a lot of jazz you know and we were going through that so we knew that we had a um, great shorthand so once the rehearsal process started after we had in since chose the actors and what have you I took off you know because I knew that any changes we would call at night because as an actor myself I knew I would see the playwright in the corner I mean I remember when the first time we saw it you know I, a word would come up my mouth and I would see the playwright go <laughs> <laughs> you know so I also knew that you know and I also know like myself a lot of times I'll be like you know and I can see the actor looking at me and I knew to take off and to come there and knew that you know Marion would have everything under control and when I came in there if there was a problem or whatever I would say Marion hey man they have a question, you answer that first question. If it's a real serious question, we'll talk about it tonight. Because a lot of times I also found out that when the playwright is there, a lot of times he also becomes a, sometimes a crutch That's for right. the actor. You know, the actor be going, you know, you'll say, well, why did you put this in here? And you'll go, well, I put this in here because this and this and this. And the actor go, yeah, I know, but, <laughs> you know. Not the actor. Right, and then before you know it, we'll be having an hour-long discussion 
and it's not going to help him make that moment. He's not going to help him make that transition because I know I'm great for that. You know, I'm great for that to, to go in there and I'll discuss, you know, the national debt, which is stopping me <laughs> because more often than not, I don't know my lines. You know, I don't know why it is. You know, I don't know this line. You know, I really want to say that. Come on, Dan, okay, as a performer on this, too. I get in arguments every night with the writer. I was going to say. Like, you're trying to read this stuff. What do you think you are, Hamlet? You know, going back and forth. Well, Lawrence Wilson strikes me as somebody who wouldn't uh, be fooled around with very much. The thing about August is August one, he's 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 the king. You know, we all you know you go, you know, he's the king. Yeah, and well, you, he's a tough cookie. And you know, also I think what also about him is that when you approach it, you know, you approach him. Even now, you approach him with great reverence. And I remember when we did a the the uh, production of Two Trains, Marion said, "I knew August. You know, me and August have sat around, and but I'm going to do it a whole different way." You know, I'm going to take out a lot of these monologues, and I'm going to break down the fourth wall, and I'm going to make the audience come into this experience. And we were like, ooh. <laughs> you know, but you saw it worked. You know, you saw it work. You saw he, had, he, had, he approached the text. Because also, he, you know, he, he talked to August before he went into production. He said, August, you know, I'm going to make you see something in this play that you didn't you didn't see because I see this I see that mm -hmm. you know because Marion has this great imagination and August was back there and said hey go out there do it and you know he loved what he did with it you know I think that you can't have a, a reverence to it and also as a you know playwright myself I don't think you should have a great reverence to the work I mean the work is important you know and it's very important to me but I also I know a lot of times the actors will always surprise you and you have to go there and give them the, the freedom to, to, to make it work or not to make it work. Because a lot of times, you know, it may be perfect, you know, in my room on the computer. I'm like, you know, making that, you know, this, this monologue really, really work. And then the actor, and it takes forever. And you go, it's got to be cut. Mm -hmm. and let, me, let me ask Tom. Oh, yeah, go ahead. No, it's been great being on, on both sides. It's, it's wonderful having been an actor and working on premieres you know, I did the American premiere of The Hot House by Pinter, and he was here, and working with Terrence on Lisbon Traviata and Horton Foote on Widow Claire, and that relationship of having them there all the time, and you're like, I'm so grateful to be saying these words and to bring them to life, but could you leave just a little bit? So, because I know as, uh, I'm a Horton's wonderful, but I know somewhere in there, they want the end result, mm -hmm. and they and it's hard for them to see the journey. And as an actor, you need to fall on your face, and you need to be given the the expanse to fail, to find the way. And say, so we'll probably get to the same end point, but let me be foolish. And it's hard sometimes when because I always felt with Horton, it was like Grandpa Walton was around, and <laughs> you know that someone I loved dearly, and I loved his words, but it was like you couldn't misbehave. And, uh, but I learned so much as an actor. And then when I wrote the musical um, that was produced in England, I, um, it made me feel good when actors came to me and said, you know, those ri the, the changes you made, that's what I needed. Why did you go to England to do the musical? It was never produced here. <laughs> um, it's, uh, How did a you get it to England? How did you find your way there? Uh, someone uh, who was, uh, I think the... Uh, well, we had a we had a, uh, a an agent over there, Sarah Randall, that was um, shopping it around, and someone found it and said, "This is great." What we would get, we did a 
We did everything. I did. I produced a benefit uh, performance of it at the Promenade Theater with um, Peter Gallagher, Debbie Shapiro. Every, everyone raved about it. No one produced it. Uh, we did a demo tape with a uh, 25-piece orchestra that people went nuts about. People would read it and say, why isn't this produced? And you go, I've got an idea. <laughs> why don't we produce it? You know. But it would... Uh, so it calls on your intuition and your initiative to find every place to... Uh, to do it. It's getting uh, published by Samuel French right now and uh, you know you keep plugging it away plugging away and then going other places and writing you know whatever opportunity you have. There is so much more to be said about the role of the director and the playwright and uh, I have a whole slew of questions I want to ask and one of them is that uh, if you were putting your money your own money and you were the producer in the show would you have spent the $600,000 for that whole Thing. How much does that add to a straight play? I know you had the luxury of it with the theater in, 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 in London, but coming over here with the expense, I want to know how you feel about that. And we're going to take that up. You don't have to answer me right now. I'm going to give you time to do it because we're going to stop for a minute and stretch and think about all the questions that are going to be thrown at you and then come back again. So right now... Just stay very close to home and stand up and stretch and turn around and come right down so we can continue the Playwright Director Seminar. Okay? This is CUNY TV, Channel 75. Continuing the American Theatre Wing seminars on working in the theatre, and this seminar is on the playwright director. And we talked about the role of the director, the role of the playwright, and the role of the actor. I just had a little private conversation with Greg here, and how it is to work in the theatre as a means of supporting yourself. Uh, is there is there enough money? Are there enough directors? Are there enough jobs? How does how do you how do you support oneself in the theater? As well, a I, I think probably the most alarming thing in the American theater right now is that for 25 years the not-for-profit theater movement has grown and flourished to the extent that there are a group of theaters producing a lot of plays and a lot of administrators making a lot of money. I mean, by a lot of money, I mean a middle-class living. But we've just been chatting here. And we don't think there are probably a dozen freelance directors making a living in this country right Why now. Why is that? We don't think there are 20 playwrights. Well, what, what, I think it's the problem of, of, of Soviet communism. It was a good idea, maybe. It just didn't work. <laughs> and the proof that it didn't work is that we don't have 50 working playwrights and 50 working directors. And that these, these, these people, because of their passion and their commitment to create, have really sustained these not-for-profit theaters. And that, I really think, must change if we're going to have a healthy theater in this country. It's just nuts that the playwrights can't make a living, and the actors can't make a living, and the directors can't make a living, and the fundraiser is driving a Lexus. This is just nuts to me. And, I think that's you know, absolutely true. I, I think it's a very, very dangerous... I mean, you know, there was a time when when there was no such thing as theater administration in any drama school in the country. That's right. And uh, then it came along and it, it has created a, a, a group of very interesting accountants, but not artists. 
Uh, and I, right. I agree. I think it's I, a, why shouldn't the play? Why shouldn't every not-for-profit theater, regional theater in this country, have a playwright who's making, say, as much as the general manager? A why not? Admi- how about a freelance administrator who goes from theater? Well, to theater? exactly right. And this is so easily changed, but we have to accept that there's a problem before we can change it. Yeah. And well, it's, it's one of the reasons I left the theater three years ago. I just couldn't bear to be part of that system it's so anymore. It's hard for those theaters to get funding that they have to put all their resources into finding money. As you know, I mean, running a theater nowadays is like not doing a play. It's like running a corporation. Right, but how do you get your money? money? If you're the signature theater company, God love them. They just, they're right. They just devoted themselves to a season of plays by heart and foot. Their writer won the Pulitzer last night. Our, all of our congratulations to him. Are they going to have an easier time raising money next year? Yes, but it's, it was their dedication to Horton Foote. But he wrote the plays, for Christ's sake. That's where the money's going to come one from. Of the, one of the big problems um, is, is sort of a, a problem in the country at, at large. Um, things have become so, so conservative. Um, regional theaters are afraid afraid to offend their subscribers in any way because all around us regional theaters are failing every single day and so whereas ten years ago there was uh, 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 a lot of uh, theaters that were doing a lot of new plays by writers nobody had ever heard of now there are a certain number of theaters who say they are but in fact, they need known quantities. They need known quantities, and they need known quantities that are writing plays that are safe. Um, very <laughs> naively, uh, when I started, rep- I started representing writers like um, Marcia Norman or Lyle Kessler. Uh, I assumed that when these writers would write a new play, people all around the country would say, "Okay, we'll do it. We'll do it. We'll do it," because. It's Marsha Norman, or it's Lyle Kessler. But the truth is, these writers have no stock. They're just like everyone else. It's a big slush pile. Why? Because if Lyle Kessler writes a new play, which he did, uh, uh, called Robbers, that was produced at Seattle, that is uh, aggressive and contains nudity and is disturbing, what happens after Dan Sullivan directs it there? Well, again, everybody says, this is a great play, but we're a little bit nervous about it. We're very lucky because all of a sudden, uh, the play is going to happen again next year at Long Wharf. But it's been five years of struggle. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he wrote this play you know, a nanosecond after orphans. I mean, it, it really, right on the heels, didn't do anything for it. Because the whole, the whole environment of, of what was considered safe and acceptable um, is, has changed in the country. And young writers are writing out, uh, are writing to cry out against what they see around them. So what they're writing is not what's acceptable, because that's what playwrights have always done. I'm I'm going to, just just a second, I'm going to step slightly outside the role of moderator here a second, because I do sit on the National Endowments Council, National Council, and I do think it's a danger, and it's certainly uh, appropriate in this panel to say that you're absolutely right. And I look with terror to the possibility of funding 
getting worse and worse uh, for company theaters. The theaters have not been hit terribly hard yet. But it's Thank not, just, it's, it's not but, just the funding. It's also the people who are buying tickets. Yeah, but the whole thing sort of go together, and, 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 and one follows the other. So yeah. I, I just say it's a danger sure. that we all have to listen. How does that... Could you answer to that in England? Because that's where we all sort of look... Well, at. it's such an extremely different system. I work mostly in the subsidized theatre. So, in fact, almost wholly in the subsidized theatre. So um, directors there just about earn a living, but they do have to do, say, three or four projects back-to-back -back in a year. I am incapable of working like that at that rate, so that's tough, but I also write, so I make a living from the two things. But the great thing is that if you can work at the National Theatre or the RSC, you can um, earn a, a living wage, and you do have a certain um, amount of, uh, of budget for your production, so you can do a physical production. There are three different auditoriums at the National Theatre, one at the small one, the Cottesloe, the medium-sized one, the Littleton, and the large Olivier. And the budgets are reflected in it for, the, for each play, for each production, but they tend to be smaller in the small theatre, medium in the medium theatre, and larger in, in, in the big theatre. So you can work in a, in a range of styles and, and express um, you know, your, your own uh, particular needs and ambitions within that building if you can get in there. Uh, but there's also the regional theatres, which are also subsidised, heavily subsidised, and a lot of young directors can start off there and start doing, like you were mentioning, doing plays by Shaw Moliere, doing classics, out in the regions where, again, they are subsidized, but you don't earn really what would be a living wage. I mean, the, the disparity is still the same in theater there. Uh, we, we also have the privilege of having television in, in, our, in, our, in the same city, you see. We have television, radio, theater. We don't have a film industry, but we have all those within London. So we tend to be able to cross, uh, cross does, over a little. Does any money come back to the National Theater from the commercial product? Oh, of course. Goes? How does that work? Well, they will be on some, I don't know what, I can't disclose the figure, but they, they will be on a percentage for this production here because uh -huh. the production originated at, the, it's a national theatre production. Do we have that here? I'm sorry, well, I just, do we have that here? Sure, of course. How, how does that if the Goodman or the Long Wharf takes a play to Broadway, money from Broadway goes back. And each one of, of the, the director, the playwright, and, and each one gets... They're well, in the commercial theatre, the, the director, the, the playwright... Just it, the theatre, usually. Just the yes, theatre. the director, the playwright, and, and the artists are all negotiating privately in the commercial sector. You That's negotiate your own contract. Between but the, the, the National Theatre or the Long Wolf would yeah. also negotiate their contract with the, with the Broadway producer. That's when you're in the commercial sector. Well, we have to have subsidised theatre, too. The, the, the yeah. public theatre, for example, is just about to receive this enormous or has received this enormous grant from really? uh, <laughs> Good News Today. But the theater yeah, is not said. unlike everything else. Every museum in America is fundraising. Every university in America is fundraising. The reason you can't, no, nobody wants to be a university president anymore is because it's all uh, alumni lunch. And you have to jump in there. there. I don't know, it's just, I think you know, it affects your work. I know that everybody who, who in a sense reads Dancing on Moonlight, I've, I've written basically two plays, which are vastly different. Um, one's called Coming of the Hurricane, which is about bare knuckle boxing after Reconstruction. But I remember when I first wrote Dancing on Moonlight, I felt I'm just going to be try to be as exciting as I can. And everybody said, one, in terms of language, violence, whatever, this play is not going to be done outside of New York. Regional theater, even I talk to my agent now, he says, hey, if you didn't get it done in New York, it was not going to be done in regional theater because it just would walk out. People would walk out. Whereas Coming of the Hurricane, which is right after, in a sense, after Civil War, it's been done twice this year. It's going to be done on a big tour next year.
but I know it affected me as a writer because now I remember after I, you know, I had, I had a whole stack of rejection letters, which basically this is a really great play. Good luck in your playwriting career, you know. And I said, I, I remember I was sitting down with, with my wife. I said, I'm going to write a play that's going to get done, you know. And that meant language making that, compromises. It meant a, a great deal of compromises because also has, in a sense, of an African American writer. I knew that also going out into the regions. Uh, there was there was a lot of material that basically I could not go with because it had to be something that in a sense would be universal, you know. And what does um, that mean? All right, Gregory. Well, I was just I was so sh I was shocked and so saddened when you said, "Well, I w I wrote a play and had twenty characters." Yeah. And then I realized I couldn't write that play, mm -hmm. and I thought that's so sad for the American theater because. That's our, I said, producers, it's our job to find the money to do a 20 character play. It's not your job to limit your imagination. Of course, one of the, um, it, this is paradoxical, but one of the problems today is not only can't you make a living in the theater, but you also don't have the opportunity to not make a living in the theater. And what I mean is, in the 60s and still in the early 70s, um, there was a, a thriving community of off-off-Broadway <coughs> theater that have wonderful producers. And it wasn't a business. It was places like La Mama and like Cafe Chino. I, I stop you right there. But in that period of time, there was not the funding, the importance of funding. No, no, but what, that that's true. And why was that? Why did they flourish without the necessity of funding, of having support? Well, because it wasn't, it wasn't in, in those kinds of theaters, it wasn't it wasn't about subscriptions. It wasn't about physical production. It was about finding a room, literally. Right, a coffee house. Right. right? And putting up a play. I'm sure and they weren't making livings. They weren't making livings. That's what I mean. I'm talking about the ability to, to just do your work and not care about how much money you made. Um, you can still do that. I mean, there are. But still it's harder to find the places. But you can't rent an apartment for right. I mean, those those those. Comparisons is not that great a difference. Those places, you know, brought us Lamford Wilson, brought us Sam Shepard. I mean, Sam Shepard. If you look at the the sheer number of plays that he had done, where he, he I'm sure made nothing at all. No, actually, the, those days they would steal concrete forms. We would, right. and and and, and <laughs> uh, on, a, on a weekend move them into to Chino. Put up some PAR spotlights with tin cans and do it. And what's and happened now is is whereas that movement evolved, it sort of evolved up into off Broadway. Now Broadway is evolving down into off Broadway. So off Broadway is very much a commercial enterprise. So there's not there's not that coffee house, that room to sort of just get your well, new that's work off done. Well, you wanted to do I, w I wanted to go on a slightly different subject. Oh, this is fascinating too. We're all into a whole other, we're into another um, a seminar here, which we should do sometime. It's wonderful. I wanted to ask something because it, it, there's one other en entity here that we haven't really talked about is, uh, is uh, choices that a director makes and a playwright makes. And one of the things that, that uh, we talked about at the break is your choice of the staircase, which is, we mentioned. You mentioned it earlier, the three stairs. Thank uh, you for coming back to that. <laughs> <laughs> there we are. Um, and so I wanted, you know, what what triggered that? 
Well, my imagination. I mean, it's not, it wasn't a choice to let me... Uh, first of all, to uh, go back to what Isabel said, I, I won't be entrapped by saying what I put my own money into putting that on because I'm an artist and I put my life into the theatre. And as we've now said, none of us have that kind of money to put on a Broadway show. Um, again, to, I was working at the National where the budget in the Littleton... Uh, was enough. This was a two-set play. The staircase was not the centre of my attention in, uh, from the beginning. It was a two-set play in which, in the second set, in which a spiral staircase was rather important. I took that to an extreme by making the staircase very tall. Why? Because the play is a heightened play by a stylized writer. So I was I was doing something which I thought came from the writer's own style. I wasn't uh, trying to impose my cleverness on it. My imagination took it further than someone else's might have done. That's all. Um, when it came to, to be done on Broadway, the cost of creating, recreating those two sets was much, much higher than in England. This comes down to um, the, the, whole, the, whole, the whole setup of, of how expensive it is to build things here, how expensive the labour is here, how expensive the materials are here. And this is one reason why the theatre physically, that aspect of it, is more expensive. Now, I can also go... I had just done a production of Uncle Vanya in the Cottesloe Theatre with just the actors, with absolutely no setting. I am not in great need of being stuck in visual theatre. But the theatre has a duty to express all aspects of art and imagination, and that comes from the writer, from the interpreters, the actor, and potentially from music, lighting, design. And if you can put all those together and have a wonderful, rich experience, that's great. The theatre mustn't only be that. is isn't got to be that every time. And there is a whole new movement at home of directors and designers. These are the big, new, creative teams working together. And um, yes, to a degree, it is quite conceptual, and, and, and sometimes it's very exciting, and sometimes it seems a little unnecessary. But it's great that visual theatre is happening as well. I don't think we should put it down at this point. Do you point. know what? It's the only depressing thing about it. Is, and I saw the production, it's brilliant. Uh, but if you would have started that over here, you wouldn't have been able to do it. That's the problem, because yeah. artists, they would have told you no. That's it. You can't, we can't afford well, they, that. They did tell me, they, they told me no so at the National. They did tell me no at the National. I just put my foot down. They kept saying no, and I kept saying yes, and I won in the end. But, I mean, that's so great that you have the opportunity to do that. I'm just saying here in the States, it's so much down to the fine line of, of, of the finance and the money and stuff. And I know, having gone through what I did with Month in the Country with a set and, you know, the struggle to get what, what I wanted up there. And, and uh, it, it's just, I'm just agreeing with you that just artistically, an arti artist, a director, should have the, the, the chance and the right to say, visually, I see this. This is important to me. I want this. This is what... And so many times we're batted down and saying, you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't. And, uh, you know, after a while, you just sort of drag around and going, well, God, well, I can't let my mind fly here and, and imagine the, and something. It is. We come back often and, and it's to, to, the, uh, to uh, the business of cost. And it, it, some, some broad, for some Broadway sets, it costs the same as building two or three houses in suburbia. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're talking $600,000, dollars $600,000. You build a couple of houses for that. For what it would cost for a revolve and some... Some canvas and a couple of flats, really. Your house in cryptogram would not cost very much, even. No, it would not. How's it going to staircase, though? Another staircase, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, we have to go to questions now, and, and there's so many unanswered questions on the platform, but we have to start now. Maybe we can get some of them. 
answered now. What is your question? Hi, my name is Margot Evan, and I'm an actress, and I want to thank the panel again for all their input and honesty. This question is directed to Lisa Peterson. Do you still feel that there's a difficulty for women to break into directing today? I've been really lucky. So that's the first thing I always say, is that I've never felt personally that I was held back in any way by being a woman. But every once in a while, I look around me, and I notice that I'm the only one, or that there's only a few. And, you know, Emily Mann uh, sort of referred to this in the New York Times the other day. Um, I'd like to think that it's getting better bit by bit. I do think that people think that women can, at least in America, that women can only direct a certain kind of play. And that does is changing slowly. Um, I think that people have to get used to the idea that women can direct plays. That's all. And I think they They've are. They've been doing that all their lives, haven't they? Haven't women <laughs> been directing all the time? Of course. I think that's changing. I do it is changing. That. Slowly, though. Um, my name is Charlie Riddell. I have a question for Scott Ellis, um, because you brought the point up, but anyone who has something to say should, I guess. Um, how do you, when you're working on a play that's been translated from its original language, how do you know which translation to pick um, so that you stay true to the original text? I was fortunate that, again, I, I, I went back to, to Turgenev's original piece. So I, I always had that in front of me. And then I would look at all the other translations, and we would take something specifically of what Turgenev was actually saying, and then I would go to another translation. A lot of it was with the actors, because the actors would say, well, this is not comfortable for me. And I said, well, let's go to this translation and see if it's, if it's uh, a little more focused on what Turgenev wanted to say. Does this, is this better? Because the actor would be able to say, well, this doesn't sound right to me. I can't make this work. So we sort of, it was a puzzle as far as that was concerned. But I was fortunate that I had a piece that had been translated so many times, different times. So it was, in, in that sense, it was easier. I wasn't working with just one. Do you read Russian? Oh, yeah, fluently. No, I had the woman there who wrote, but, you know, who, who you understood, who, who speaks Russian, uh, so she was there. You can I go back to the original Russian, even if you don't read Cyrillic. If you look and you see that Varya's line goes, thing, 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 then, and the American translator has written, oh. yes, well, you know, I was walking down the street and I noticed that as I looked up at the sky and I saw 11 birds coming at me, that person that's, has gotten carried away. <laughs> exactly. And so emotion comes from rhythm, right? I mean, that's yeah. so much of the time. And if you can get the rhythm of the translation right, then you can, then you're on your way. And, you know, the famous Constant Garnett translation in, in War and Peace, I guess, <laughs> but I digress. <laughs> you, you sense that that's not what we want. Do you know it's also? But, they, but she probably did get the rhythm right. It's also interesting because I found in the original uh, his dot dot dots, which were not. Again, we went back and looked at those dot dot dots, and that made a huge difference. Also, he was he only put in a very few stage directions in the original. You know, you're always taught to scratch them out. But when you went back to the original, you thought, you re I realized, my god, he's very specific here, what he wants. And I tried it, and of course it worked. It worked great. But it was, and he didn't do many of them, but those things that I would not have found in the other translations, but going back to it. So it's fascinating. Hi, um, my name is Will Garcher, and I'm an actor. Um, I thought it was an interesting point that Mr. Butler brought up earlier about um, that sometimes the playwright will expect the final product from the actor right away. Uh, for the directors on the panel, what is it that you expect from the actor going into the first rehearsal? Uh, where do you want the actor to be at when you start? Well, am I to answer? Sorry, no, sir. Sir. Um, you have the best eye contact. <laughs> <laughs> I do, yes. 
<laughs> I expect absolutely nothing. No. Really, absolutely nothing. No, I like to sit down and um, work on the text for about two weeks without anybody playing or interpreting or bringing anything of their own roles to our work. I like to explore the play. Mm -hmm. And I do a lot of exercises, physical exercises as well, because I like my work to be very physical. And all I expect the actor to bring is commitment to that, but n nothing in terms of results. Lisa, what do you think? Yeah, I, I would agree to that. I mean, it, I mean a certain amount of uh, intelligence and openness is important, I think, for, for an actor as well. And I think it's nice if an actor has an opinion <laughs> about, about the, the play or about the world that they can kind of uh, throw into the pot. I mean, because every time you gather a group of people in a room to work on a play together, you're creating a small um, community. And so it's nice when an actor is uh, able to voice an opinion and throw it out there. One thing, well. too, is, is going back to the producer also. I don't think, I think producers have to start understanding that the rehearsal process is the most important thing. To try to put a show up in four weeks is ridiculous. To do Turgenev in three and a half weeks yeah. is close to suicide. Why, it doesn't make any sense to me. Why not have eight weeks of rehearsal to really focus in and, you know, it's four more weeks. That, you know, it's money budget, well spent. It's money well yeah. spent and people don't understand. It's like, get it up, get it up, get it up. And you can't. And, and <laughs> if, if you, so to speak. And if you, uh, if you could, I would, but I can't. So I, you know, to say you have two weeks, it's, it, that's, I mean, I've never had two weeks to sit around in a text. I would love to sit around on a text for two weeks. And it should be two weeks. Well, that's I exactly. I work any other way well, now. So I choose not to work rather than work in the conventional way. I, at Lincoln Center, I started asking the directors how long they would like to rehearse. And they always thought there was a hearing problem. <laughs> but but I, they said, yeah, can I have as long as I want? I said, you can have as long as you want. You tell me how long you want to rehearse. And almost always they said six weeks, seven weeks. Mm. Nobody said 23 no. weeks. Mm. You just name a, a reasonable... And so we, took, we stopped calling that a luxury. We just started calling that rehearsal. Mm -hmm. and, and it was much yeah. better. I like the actors to bring gifts on the first day. <laughs> 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 uh, my name is Dorothy Gannon. Um, for the panel, uh, earlier, I think it was Mr. Butler talked about um, writers having limitations and trying to get rid of them. I wonder if you have any practical suggestions, whether it's internal limitations or whether it's having 20 characters in a play or thinking you can't have 20 characters. This is for me. Sure. Or for the panel. Well, oh. why don't you take it? Um, I, just think it I just think it helps. You know, I was, I was interested when Greg was saying he... He felt it's their right to be there all the time. So it does get to be a dicey thing when you're working on their play. Could you leave now? Um, I just think there's something um, we all, whether you're a director, uh, a playwright, an actor, you all have to have a, some sort of process of letting go of something, of control or something. You know, it's, it's your baby, but now it's ours too. There's, uh, I think it was... Um, Oh, damn it, my, I, I blank on names. Uh, ran Yale for so long and has directed all of our... Uh, oh, Lloyd, Lloyd Richards. Lloyd, Lloyd Richards was talking once, and he was, uh, he was talking about where he felt it starts with the playwright knowing more about it and then the director knowing more about it, and it was hard for his ego to let go that then it gets to a point where the actors know more about it. And I think that... That takes respect and mutual trust, and that's the collaborative effort. Um, 
I feel lucky that I was raised uh, through college training and everything to, to focus on the play, be very grateful for the profession I'm in, uh, and that it's ensemble. That, that I don't know how to work any other way. So when Could I break in on this for one very quick question? Um, does the playwright ever uh, audition the director, in a sense, to say, what do you think my play is about? Absolutely. Sure. So did you know? It's a, it's a, a more ca you're generally more casual than an actor's audition. It's a conversation over a cup of coffee, but absolutely. It's the writer's choice, really, to who, whether they use you or not. So. Well, it is. It is. You know. Okay. I mean, if, 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 if uh, Incommunicado, for example, came to me, um, this, this production, with a producer, with the money, and the director as a package, hmm. all right? And they came to my agent and said, we'd like to do this play. I met with the director, with Rick Corley, for a long cup of coffee, uh, for an hour and a half. Um, I didn't know him. I had his reviews, you know. Uh, I didn't know the producer. Tom? I'm we, going to have to ask you to stay for phone. lunch and so that we can continue this because it's, it's my time to say thank you very, very much for being here and, and please forgive me for being so rude as to interrupt you and you're just a wonderful panel but it's come to an end and I have to say that this is the American Theatre Wing's seminar on working in the theatre and this is on playwright directing and it's been an absolutely fabulous one and I think that I've, I, it's, it's a panel that could go on and on and on. Thank you all for being here.